So in about two years, we just got the lowest print before the banking crisis even hit. So if it dropped 10% in job openings, dropped 10% in February before the banking crisis hit, and now how much is it gonna drop in March? Mm-hmm. 15%? It's gonna collapse. We're gonna be back to pre-pandemic levels, six, seven million by, by the summer. What's up, HGI investors, and welcome back to Hypergrowth Investing. I'm Aaron Davis, and as always, pleased to be joined by investment analyst Luke Lango. Luke, what's up today? Well, Aaron, I woke up today in a good mood. I woke up yesterday in a good mood. I woke up every day last week in a good mood. I'm in a good mood these days. My spirits are better than they were during the bear market because I don't think we're in a bear market anymore, Aaron. I think we are sprinting. No, not sprinting. We are grinding our way into a bull market. And, you know, some bull markets start with bangs, some start with a whimper. This one's starting with a whimper, but it's a bull market nonetheless, and it's going to bang pretty soon. So I'm I'm very optimistic, very positive, very excited. Of course, as everybody's always told me, the direction of stock should not determine your mood. But when you're as invested in the game as I am, yeah, it's tough not to have it impacted a little bit. All right. Well, hopefully uh, this this positive attitude that you had throughout the bear market is just going to continue to soar through this beginnings of the new bull market into the rest of 2023. And I'm looking forward to diving into our topics in just a few moments. If this is your first time joining us, Hypergrowth Investing is the weekly podcast that picks the brain of investment analyst Luke Lango. Each week, we take an in-depth look at emerging tech and investment innovations, automation, clean energy, artificial intelligence, EVs, and more. Nothing is off limits. If you're joining us for the first time, we go up every Wednesday on YouTube, Spotify, Apple, Google, wherever you choose to listen to your favorite podcast. So make sure to hit like and subscribe to get Hypergrowth Investing as soon as it goes up. Again, I'm Aaron Davis, educator, lifelong learner, and your proxy into the mind that is the Luke Lango. All right, Luke, a lot to talk about this week. And I want to start with the major market moving topics, then work our way down to some of the more stock specific stuff. First up, let's Mm -hmm. talk about the most recent big news that hit the tape, and that is the OPEC Plus emergency oil production cut. OPEC Plus announced Mm -hmm. over the weekend that they will cut their oil output by up to 1 million barrels per day to help support oil prices, and oil prices jumped 7% on Monday. Now, to be sure, Mm -hmm. the price of oil is still stuck just at around $80 per barrel. It was at $130 about a year ago. But suddenly everyone is talking about $100 oil again. You've said here before that oil to $100 would be a market and economic killer. So first, are you worried about this OPEC production cut? Second, how does this impact your view of inflation and the markets? And finally, Fitan Kurdi, one of our fans, asked the question, should we be concerned about the recent surge in oil prices? Right. Yeah. Great. Great. Great questions. This is exactly where we need to start. Um, in short, no, I, I'm I'm not concerned about it at all. I think it's it's a cosmetic cut. Actually, what it is is it is a cut to stop prices from oil prices from dropping below fifty. It's not a cut that's going to get you back to 100. It's not a cut that's going to get you to 90. It's a cut that got it to 80, and now it's going to flatline at 80, and I think it's probably going to go lower. Because the reality is, is the economy, the global economy is dramatically and rapidly slowing. That slowdown that we were expecting throughout 2022 that was going to get the Fed to pause its rate high campaign that never really showed up is finally showing up in full force with everything happening at once. So obviously we had the banking crisis in March and, you know, we've talked about it on this call before or on this podcast before my expectation from that bank crisis, the real collateral effect, the real aftershock of that was going to be the banks were going to stop lending. And indeed, yesterday, the Dallas Fed came out with fresh data that showed bank lending volumes across the U.S. plunged in the last few weeks of March, absolutely plunged. And that bank lending volume is currently at its lowest levels since May 2020, when we were just clawing our way out of the pandemic. Banks are tightening up. 
Okay, that is a huge driver of economic demand. Banks lending money. It's a huge driver of spending. It's a huge driver of demand for oil. That spigot, if you will, has been turned not completely closed, but almost entirely closed. So you have that happening. Yesterday, same day that the oil price back, oil price spike happened, right? Oil prices opened up. They gapped up 7% at the open. Stocks were down. And, you know, treasury yields were up. Looked like a massive reinflation trade. Then the March ISM manufacturing report hit the tape. And boom, everything reversed. Oil gave up some of its gains. Stocks rallied off the loads. S&P and Dow finished higher. Treasury yields collapsed. The reinflation trade became a def- the deflation trade again on the very same day that oil prices spiked. Because that March ISM manufacturing report showed that the manufacturing, the, the manufacturing sector of the U.S. economy, which is a huge demand engine for oil, is crashing right now. The The headline index missed estimates and fell pretty big month over month. New orders index missed estimates and fell pretty big month over month. The employment index, very importantly, because remember the employment side of things has been very sticky, missed estimates and fell pretty big month over month. The prices indices the prices index fell pretty big month over month in misestimates as well. So across the board, that report was really, 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 really soft. And it showed that the U.S. manufacturing sector is receding, contracting, not strong at all right now. And so oil price spike didn't matter. Market responded more to that report because people are starting to realize, well, wait, that production cut from OPEC is it's not stimulative to prices. It's going to be offset more than offset by the demand weakening. That's why OPEC plus cut, cut oil production. They've waited this long for a re, they, they don't want to cut oil production. They want to produce oil. They want to make money off that oil. They did it a safe face from oil going down to 60, 55, 50, because that's where it was going. If all this data hit without the manufacturing or without the, the OPEC plus, uh, production cut. So the production cut, all it's really going to do is stabilize oil prices. I think in that 75 to 85, maybe 70 to 80 range. And that's where we're going to be stuck there at that level. Oil prices are down about 20% year over year. That's not inflationary. That's deflationary. Also of note, yesterday, oil prices spiked. Guess what? No other commodity spiked. Natural gas prices, which should be tied to oil, plunged yesterday. Copper prices dropped. Aluminum prices dropped. Platinum prices dropped. Cattle prices dropped. Corn prices dropped. Wheat prices dropped. Oats prices dropped. Every other commodity dropped. Bloomberg's commodity index is still down 18% year over year. It's still down massively from just two months ago. So no, I'm not at all concerned about this, this oil production cut. There are huge disinflation trends at work right now, huge disinflation trends at work, not to mention today, the reason the market, you know, the market opened lower, kind of rallied, tech's kind of showing a little bit of alpha today, where we're actually falling a bit now because people are more afraid of a recession than inflation. The jobs opening report came out today, February jolts, job opening labor turnover report survey. That report came out today. It's the it's the uh, the most lagging of the uh, labor market report. So this is the February report. So this is before the banking crisis hit. Job openings collapsed ten percent month over month from January to February. One of the biggest collapses ever to nine point nine million job openings, which is the lowest and the first sub ten million uh, job openings reading since. I believe it was March or May. Now I'm getting that the M months confused. Either March or May of 2021. So in about two years, we just got the lowest print before the banking crisis even hit. So if it dropped 10% in job openings, dropped 10% in February before the banking crisis hit. And now how much is going to drop in March? 15%? It's going to collapse. We're going to be back to pre-pandemic level six, seven million by, by the summer. There are huge disinflation trends at work in the economy right now. Those trends against the OPEC, I mean, you basically have a wave of disinflation and OPEC trying to swim against that tide <laughs> with a production tide. Doesn't matter. Wave's going to keep going. Yeah, it'll create a little turbulence like it did yesterday. Oil, oil prices spiked. They're down today. Oil is oil is down, down today. 
So, and it's it stuck at 80. So, um, yeah, I, I don't think that this is anything to worry about because the cut is going to be offset by what is a massive and strengthening disinflation wave, an unstoppable disinflation wave that is rippling across uh, the, the global economy right now, but very specifically uh, the U.S. economy. And then on top of all this, right, China is reopening and that, that's going to normalize supply chains and help inflationary pressures as well significantly. So, no, I, I'm not at all concerned about uh, the OPEC plus production cut. And in fact, if you look at the historical data, so yesterday was a very unique day for oil in that oil is not not a super uh, volatile market on a daily basis. It jumped 7% at the open yesterday, more than 7%. That's a rare move for oil. It's only done that like I think eight or nine times over the past 25 years where oil jumped more than 7% at the open of a trading day. Most of the time, about 80% of the time after it does that, it gives back all those gains and then some over the next 20 to 30 days. Because big jumps like that tend to be counter trend rallies in response to production cuts where everybody gets all hyped up about the production cuts. And then they realize, actually, the production cuts are happening because demand is weakening substantially. So the production cut gets overwhelmed by weakening demand and oil prices then resume a downtrend. So usually big single day rallies in oil are nothing more than counter trend rallies that end up with oil continuing in a downtrend. So no, yes, I have said before that oil going to 100 would be a killer for the market and a killer for the economy and would crush everything, even oil and gas stocks, because that's going to create a massive recession. That's not going to happen because OPEC just did this production cut. And in fact, I think it's going to be damn near impossible for oil to get to triple digits anytime soon, given the massive economic destruction happening right now. We hiked rates at an, we, the Fed, hiked rates at an unprecedented pace throughout 2022. And we didn't feel any shocks, but you don't think those shocks were going to be felt at some point. At some point, when you go from zero to four and a half, four, seven, five, five percent on rates, you're going to feel it in the economy. And we're feeling it now. We are finally feeling it. And this is this is, this is how, how these things happen. Right. They don't show up in a trickle. They show up all at once. The army just knocks on your doorstep. That's where we are. The army of disinflation, the army of economic destruction has arrived on the doorstep. And it doesn't matter what OPEC does, oil prices are, are probably not going to surge anytime soon and inflation's not going to reaccelerate anytime soon. The trends underway in the economy, disinflation, labor market weakening, financial stress, they're very, very, very powerful. And they're probably going to last for a long time. So I would bet alongside those trends, alongside that wave, and not alongside this, you know, one-time production cut. Congratulations, we raw raw seven percent of the day and move on. That's that. That's what that story is. So, <laughs> from a market perspective, I remain very optimistic because, again, I think that this mass, this army showing up on the doorstep, this army of disinflation, this army of economic destruction, seems like bad news. It's actually exactly what we need to get the economy healthy again. Because, you know, as I said before, you need to get sick before you can get better. This is us getting sick. And now the Fed can come in and make us better. The Fed has, you know, we're in this window of opportunity. We're in this sweet spot where the economy is slowing rapidly enough to kill inflation, but not slowing rapidly enough to kill the economy. The economy is much stickier and stronger than inflation. So we're in this sweet spot where we're slowing enough to kill inflation, but not enough to kill the economy. The Fed has a narrow window of opportunity here within the next one to three months to hit the pause button and guide us to a soft landing. I have had faith in the Fed this whole time. I think they've done a masterful job, a truly masterful job. They brought down inflation by 300, 400, 500 basis points without so much as a little bit of damage to the labor market, but not really. They've done a masterful job, and I think they're going to end with a masterful act, and I think that's going to guide us to a soft landing. So that's why I am constructive on, on the markets and remain constructive on the markets despite this weakening economic data. Or actually maybe because of this weakening economic data, rather. Okay. So let's 
talk about this uh, disinflation wave. Um, you're still seeing significant disinflation in the pipeline, but in your own words, that's really only one part of what you're calling the economic triumvirate that will get the Fed to pivot mm -hmm. and spark a new bull market. Right. The other two parts, as you've already kind of stated, are the labor market and the financial markets. So again, are you seeing mm -hmm. similarly strong signals there to strengthen the Fed pivot bull thesis? Yeah, exactly. Like I said, well, the labor market is absolutely weakening, right? We saw the um, the job openings report for February. It absolutely crashed. Um, we And that's before the banking crisis. We talked about that. So March is going to be much, much weaker. Um, we're, we're seeing layoff announcements pile up. Yesterday, Walmart just fired 2,000 um, or announced intentions to lay off 2,000 fulfillment workers in its warehouses. So uh, the, the layoff announcements, Disney just started their layoffs last week. So the layoffs are, are, are piling up. Um, we saw the jobless claims rise last week. Now, again, jobless claims on an absolute level remain pretty low. But when you look at the data, uh, the leading indicators of those headline jobless claims numbers are pointing higher. Specifically, one way to kind of gauge the health of the, the jobless claims numbers is to look at it, the state-by-state -state data and find the states that are the most economically sensitive states and see what's happening in those states. And if you do that and you look at sort of the, the top 10%, the most economically sensitive states of so the five or six most economically sensitive states in America, jobless claims in those states are absolutely soaring right now. They are going straight up and to the right. That's a leading indicator for nationwide jobless claims. Usually those states report spiking jobless claims and then nationwide jobless claims spike. So we're seeing lots of signs that the labor market is significantly deteriorating at the current moment, that these massive, you know, we had the massive layoff announcements in tech in 2022 that didn't spread across the economy. Now it is. That was a harbinger of things to come. And so now we're at this point where the layoffs are spreading out and you're starting to see hiring slow, job openings come down, jobless claims go up, unemployment rates are going to start rising, job growth is going to slow, job creation will likely become job destruction. That's we're all we're in that process right now. So the labor market weakening is definitely happening. But again, we're in that sweet spot where we're still adding jobs, jobless openings are still or job openings are still high, jobless claims are still absolutely low. So we're slowing but we're not dying. And that is again that sweet spot, this narrow window for the Fed to guide us to a soft landing. Financial stress. Yes, multiple measures of financial stress are getting blown out. Um, you look at yield spreads. You look at you know the ten-year Treasury yield just by itself. That thing is plunging like a rock. Two-year Treasury yield plunging like a rock. That shows that bond investors, the smartest investors on the planet, in my opinion, are preparing for for a big slowdown. Preparing for financial markets to get tight. Uh, like I said, credit spreads are widening. Yield spreads are widening. Um, default spreads are widening. And uh, bank lending volume is collapsing, as, as we talked about earlier. So you are seeing financial market stress. And then big CEOs, uh, bank CEOs like Jamie Dimon, JP Morgan CEO, just came out today and said this banking crisis is not over. There are more shoes to fall. The aftershocks and we felt for a long time. And it, that's, that's the piece of advice that you want to heed when – that guy's seen 08. He's been around the block. He's one of the smartest people on, on Wall Street in terms of the banking sector. And if he says the banking sector is not completely healed or, or ready to bounce back just yet, then you probably want to listen to that. So um, I think that there are definitely sufficient factors for the Fed to smash that pause button. Today, the, the Reserve Bank of Australia just hit that pause button. Bank of Canada hit that pause button, what was that, last month? Um, those banks are always tied. You know, the, the global economies, it, 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 it's global, it's connected. And because of that, you know, the way Canada's economy is trending is the way America's economy is trending is the way Australia's economy is trending. The, the policies of those central banks always mirror one another. They're, oh, they, you know, they're off one to two months here or there, one hike here, one hike there, right? They're off by a little, smidges. But the overall trajectory, trend, they are the same. Whenever the Bank of Canada pauses, whenever the Reserve Bank of Australia pauses, the Fed pauses too, within one to two months. Everything, the whole stage is set for, for a Fed pause. Uh, if not in May, then definitely by June. You know, I think the market right now is at a coin flip. I haven't checked the odds in, in two or three days, but when I last checked the odds, it was a coin flip in May, 50-50. And then by June, 100% chance they, they pause. So 
I'm with those odds. I think May's a coin flip. I think June's a definite pause. Doesn't really matter. Market's clearly front running the action. NASDAQ's already entered a new bull market, a technical new bull market. It's rallied 20% off its lows. S&P 500 has really been uh, powering higher for six months now, right? We bottomed in October. We rallied throughout October, November, December, January, February, March. Now we're in April. So we're in the seventh month of the S&P 500 pushing higher. That That's a long time. Uh, all the indices, S&P, actually, I don't, know about the, I don't follow the Dow. I think the Dow is worthless. I follow the S&P and the NASDAQ. S&P and NASDAQ, they're above their 50, uh, their 200-day uh, moving averages. 50s above the 100, above the 200. You got golden waterfalls there. I mean, the technicals just look great. So I think everything's shaping up for the Fed to, um, the Fed to pause and what has been pretty significant stock market strength over the past six months to continue, persist, and even accelerate over the next six to 12 months. And I think that's going to start a multi-year bull market. That's that's my outlook right now. So that, that's how I'm feeling about things. And that, again, it's because inflation is falling, labor market is weakening, and financial stress is spiking. And those are three things that lead to Fed pauses always. All right. Um, drilling down into the more sector-specific and stock-specific stuff, You've been very vocal about a housing market rebound here in 2023, powered by the aforementioned Fed pivot. Uh, we're getting a bunch of positive housing data every week, it seems. And last week, you actually highlighted a unique metric I've never heard of called the Redfin Home Buyer Demand Index. Apparently, it's right. spiking like crazy right now. Uh, can you dive yeah. into more detail about that and provide an update on your housing market bull thesis? Right. Yeah. So let me let me pull up that Redfin one on my computer over here. Yeah. I mean, the, the thing about this, the perfect leading indicators for home buying demand have to be Redfin and Zillow mm -hmm. because they control the top of the funnel. It, it, they're they're the search bars for the housing market. Right. You're not going. I mean, a lot of us go on Redfin and Zillow just to casually peruse homes. I'm guilty of that. I am not in the market to buy a home. We, we bought a home, you know, uh, two years ago now. Yeah, something like that. And um, I'm not in the market, but still I'm on Zillow notifications. I, I scroll. I look at all these things. So um, there are definitely those of us that are just casual fans. But if you're going to start your home buying journey these days in 2023, you started on Redfin or Zillow. You start looking for homes on there. You start talking to agents on there. You start, you know, booking appointments on there. So what Redfin has created is a proprietary uh, index called the Home Buyer Demand Index, which kind of accumulates all that data. Specifically, it accumulates, let me find exactly what it accumulates, um, requests to tour homes on the platform, make an offer on a home through the platform, and or start a home search with the Redfin agent. So it's those three things put together into a composite um, index. Yes, that index is spiking right now, and it's been rebounding all year long. It's at its highest since uh, October, no, bottom in October 2022, and it's at its highest reading since May of 2022. So you're seeing the, what I would say, the foremost leading indicator of the housing market in a six-month rebound, spiking to levels not seen since the housing market was healthy back in May of 2022. And that tells me, hey, you know, the housing market's back. Every single data point I'm looking at, existing home sales, new home sales, uh, home builder sentiment, this the Redfin uh, leading uh, home buyer market index, or home buyer demand index. Um, look at the, the stock prices of Zillow, Open Door, Redfin, uh, all the home builder stocks. <laughs> the housing market is back, and it's back because mortgage rates. And the the whole story here, as we've been saying for months, is that there is so much pent up and sideline demand to buy a home. They. There's a generation of people that didn't buy after 08. They lived with their parents. They lived in cities. They lived in apartments. They were paying rent. They accumulated a lot of money. They got a lot of savings. Those savings got juiced during COVID at the same time the value of the home to the individual rose because you know hybrid work is now the norm. Three days in office, two days out, two days in office, three days out. Lot of, lot of do. So, you know, now all of a sudden all these people want to buy a home and they have the means to buy a home. But then they got priced out of the market because of mortgage rates. But they didn't disappear. Those people didn't disappear. Their demand was quelled by high interest rates. 
Now that mortgage rates are starting to slip and they have continued to slip, they follow treasury yields. Treasury yields are going lower. So, you know, mortgage rates, 30 years, there's a lot of places that report it daily, but the official data gets reported once a week. As you want to find out how it's trending in between those weekly reports, look at treasury yields, look at long-term treasury yields specifically, look at the 10-year. The 10-year is collapsing, continues to fall. Mortgage rates are continuing to fall then too. So mortgage rates are coming down. That is energizing all the sideline pent-up demand and it's flooding back into the housing market so that and at the same time you have a constrained supply so you're getting big demand with constrained supply and that that leads to a pretty healthy housing market rebound and that's why i have been and continue to be very bullish on a rebound in housing stocks a lot of this rebound has already happened for a lot of names zillow is up significantly from its lows but it's still well off its highs Open door is up significantly from its lows, but it's still significantly, significantly off its highs. Home builders are well off their lows, but they're still well off their highs too. So the rebound has started, but there's still a lot of runway left. And when I look at the housing market data, now I try to look at it through the lens of like zoom out, look at the big picture, look at the 20, 30, 40, 50 year views here and see, okay, what happens when this pattern happens? When home builder sentiment plunges to this level and then rebounds strongly, when existing home sales plunge to this level and then rebound strongly, the dynamics we're seeing today. They are consistent with the start of multi-year housing bull markets. They are not consistent with short-term snapbacks and then, you know, back into a bear market. No, no, no. They are consistent with the first inning of a multi-year housing bull market. This is what we saw after the dot-com crash and then into the, the housing peak in 2007. This is what we saw after that bubble popped and then we had a basically 10, 12-year bull market in housing. Those same metrics, they're identical to what we saw back then is what we're seeing today. So I'm of the belief that housing stocks are in the first or second inning of a nine inning comeback here and that a lot of gains will be had by uh, people who invest in housing stocks over the next 12 months, 24 months, 36 months. I think it's a start of a, of a long-term uptrend here for, for those names. And of course, you know, because I'm the tech guy, the way I like to play it is through tech-infused housing. So Open Door, Zillow, Redfin, Rocket Mortgage, you know, those are kind of the, the tech housing plays. Um, Compass is in there as well. So, you know, not going to tell you exactly which ones I'm super excited about right now, which ones I'm overweight, but you know, that, that kind of wheelhouse, I think is a very, uh, it's a levered way to play the, the housing market comeback in my opinion, because it'll benefit from both the, the rebound in the housing market, as well as a rebound in valuations of long duration assets as, uh, interest rates come down. Okay. Uh, Shifting gears a little bit, another one of your investment themes for 2023 has been long the social media stocks, Alphabet, Snap, Meta, Pinterest, yeah. etc. Because you see digital ad trends finally stabilizing and you see TikTok getting banned. So what's the status of that trade? Uh, yeah, I think you got to remain long and strong, the uh, the digital ad names, specifically the social media names. So um, I think TikTok is going to get banned. Uh, I listened to the TikTok CEO testimony um, last week on Capitol Hill and congressmen do not, congressional members do not like TikTok. They don't understand it. They, and they don't like what they don't understand. And, you know, all power to them. I'm not going to say whether it's right or wrong to ban TikTok, but I think at the end of the day, what matters is are they, are they, are they not? And I think they will ban TikTok. I think an outright ban of TikTok is, is going to happen. So that means a lot of demand is going to flow out of that platform and supply, supply of content, demand for that content is going to flow out of that platform. Where is it going to flow into? You know, these people love short form video content consumption. That is the way of the world today. By the way, I have a startup idea. Somebody should make a TikTok type app just for educational videos. Mm -hmm. So like, you know, my, my feed sometimes gets thrown uh, an educational video in there, but it would be really like really powerful if you could tap into the, the way people learn these days. Mm -hmm. The way people consume content these days is through short form video. They want to watch 30 seconds, a minute, two minutes of something entertaining, captivating, stimulating, and then on to the next thing. If we could get AI to compress complex topics like quantum computing, uh, hydrogen, uh, fintech, stock market, um, anything like that, algebra, you know, even simple topics into a 30 second, one minute, two minute clip, make it super visually stimulating and just created a feed of those. 
I think that'd be a fabulous way for people to learn these days. You got to change. You got to embrace the change. You got to adjust to the way people want to consume content these days. I think that'd be a really cool app. Anyway, startup idea. But <laughs> moving back to the TikTok ban. Uh, yes, I think it's going to get banned. You're going to have a lot of exodus of demand for content of that type of content and supply of that type of content to other platforms. Where's it, where's it going to go? What I'm noticing and what I think surveys are confirming is that it's going to Instagram Reels first. Instagram Reels is the biggest winner here. So that's a huge tailwind from Meta stock. Then I think it's going to YouTube Shorts. I think YouTube Shorts are getting a lot of traction. So that's, you know, big tailwind for uh, Alphabet stock, Google. And then I think it's going to Snapchat. That's, that's the third one that it's going to, the, the interpersonal communications. That's a big tailwind, obviously, for Snap stock. So I think Google, Meta, Snap, that's the way to play the TikTok ban. Now, at the same time, you're going to get another tailwind for those three stocks in 2023. And that is going to be a lot of analysts have come out in their conversations and their channel checks with advertisers to say, hey, digital ad demand is stabilizing and rebounding now. So you're probably going to get a rebound in digital ad spending in 2023. That should help those stocks as well tremendously. So I think long the big three social media, Snap, Google, Meta, makes a lot of sense. You can throw Pinterest in there because of the digital ad rebound, though I don't think Pinterest benefits from the engagement loss on TikTok. I don't think that goes into Pinterest. There's not much overlap in in. Uh, and users as an overlap, but not in usage type, usage time. So uh, I don't think it benefits from that. But the other three do benefit tremendously from that. And then another thing here is that, and this is kind of where I got that TikTok style video idea. <laughs> I think Meta, everybody talked about Meta because they even changed, Facebook changed their name to Meta, that Meta's second act is going to be the Metaverse, right? Mm-hmm. I don't think so. I think the metaverse is going to be their third act. And I think they're realizing that they're shifting. First act was digital advertising. Second act is generative AI. That I think meta. So what's the problem with meta? Well, Facebook can get boring because it's all user generated content. Mm -hmm. So when users stop using the platform and users stop generating content, then the volume and likely the quality of the UGC, user-generated content on that platform goes down, which leads to lower usage and then in turn less UGC, lower usage. It's, it's a negative feedback loop, right? That's what Facebook, the Facebook core platform is stuck in. And Instagram kind of got stuck in that too, right? Where it's because it's these are UGC-driven platforms, the less usage you get, the less content you create, the less UGC you get, the less users you get, so on and so forth, right? They're stuck in this negative feedback loop. How do you break that negative feedback loop? You break it with generative AI. You don't rely on UGC anymore. You rely on company-created generative AI content. Now, of course... Facebook couldn't do that before because they couldn't create content that everybody liked. But now with the power of AI, I mean, they got the data to do it, right? They have all the data on all the stuff you're clicking, all the stuff you're liking, how long you're watching videos for on Instagram, on Facebook, on you know what you're talking about on WhatsApp, Messenger. I mean, they have all this data about what you like. They know what you like. They can take all that data, your interest graph. And they can apply their tremendous amount of resources, their data engineers to that, create AI models and AI algorithms to then create generative AI content that you are going to like and that you are going to interact with. So they're not reliant on UGC anymore, as reliant on UGC. And that breaks the negative feedback loop of declining usage and declining UGC and inserts an increasing flow and supply of content in this flywheel, which should reduce user growth, reduce engagement growth, reduce time on the platform. And of course, advertisers add dollars, follow eyeballs. So the more eyeballs and eye time on these platforms because of the new content, boom, the more ad dollars come in. So I think Meta has actually realized their second act is not the Meta first. That's the third act in 2025, 2026, 2027. The second act right now, 23, 24, 25 is generative AI. And I think they're leaning really heavily into that and it's going to work. So it's happening at the exact same time. The TikTok ban's going on. There's a reason Meta stock is more than doubled off the lows. Got to 90. Now it's above 200. There's a reason that's happening. Okay. And I think one of the reasons is 
this narrative is taking hold and investors are starting to realize there's a lot of upside potential with that strategy and the stock is not priced to that upside potential. This may once again become a 10, 15, 20% you know, revenue grower compounded over time. At the same time that the company is dramatically reducing costs, they're firing and 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 firing. And firing. They are getting lean. So they are executing a new growth strategy that could juice the top line while getting lean. That means big revenue growth, fat margin expansion. That's huge profit growth. We got bullish at Meta at 90 and we are not stopping our bullish tone now because we think there's a lot of upside still in the stock. And I think the same will go for Snap and the same will go for, for Alphabet and all these social media stocks because I think there's a lot of upside with leveraging generative AI to create entirely new streams of content for consumers to consume increasing eye time, which increases dollars, ad dollars. So yeah, I, I'm still very bullish on these stocks, but the TikTok ban is just one of a myriad of reasons why I'm bullish on these stocks. Gotcha. Um, I also want to dive into the hydrogen world for a bit because one of your favorites right. in this space, okay. Plug Power, uh, it's been struggling. So can yeah. you comment as to why it's been struggling and should investors stick with this stock? Yeah, so I think the, the hydrogen market in general has been struggling uh, and plug power stocks has been struggling because the hydrogen market is developing more slowly than a lot of people anticipated. Um, Bloomberg Energy Finance is they're the thought leader in this. They're the market research firm you need to have access to or need to have access to the data in order to really understand this industry. Um, they thought more than one gigawatts of uh, electrolyzers were going to ship in 2022. In fact, probably only 800 megawatts of electrolyzers shipped. So, but you know, much less than expected. And that's because of project delays, some short-term cancellations. So there's just a lot of, it's not, the market's not growing as quickly. Now, still growing very, very quickly. Shipments are expected to double or triple this year in 2023, electrolyzer shipments. So the market is still growing, growing, is still growing very quickly, but it's going through as all hyper growth markets do uh, some growing pains. And those growing pains are weighing on the stocks. Plug Power is, is the face of the hydrogen revolution. And therefore, that stock kind of trades just with hydrogen market momentum. Hydrogen market momentum has been weaker than expected. So Plug Power stock has has dropped. Not to mention, Plug Power has developed this infamous reputation of over-promising and under-delivering. It's what they do. It, it's it's so irritating as, as a long-term investor in the name because they you know have these massive five-year, 10-year financial targets that look achievable. I mean, they're very aggressive, but they look achievable, yet they consistently miss their near-term targets. And what are the, what are the long-term target targets except for a bunch of the near-term targets piled on top of each other, right? You know, if you miss all your near-term targets, you never get your long-term one. So the, all those reasons are why plug power stock has been weak. All those reasons are why a multitude of hydrogen stocks have not performed up to, up to expectations in 2023. However, I remain very long-term bullish on, on the hydrogen market because I do think hydrogen as a replacement for natural gas is the way the world is moving is the way the world is shifting. And I believe there are a lot of legislative actions currently in motion, which will significantly accelerate the movement, especially in 2023. And this summer, we should get more clarity on the production tax credit for clean hydrogen, green hydrogen in the United States. That'll be the first ever a PTC for green hydrogen. So I think that'll really juice um, project development here in the US. Um, I think you know Europe is gonna be very strong. You're seeing a lot of investments in hydrogen in Europe uh, currently. And we're seeing a lot of big oil firms move into this space as well. So I think the long-term demand outlook, the long-term fundamentals of the hydrogen market remain very, 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 very favorable. It's just the market is going through some considerable growing pains right now. And when those growing pains resolve themselves, I don't know. I would not recommend hydrogen stocks as a short-term trade here. I don't think they are, and I don't think there's the thesis for them to be a short-term trade. But I do think the long-term three, five, seven, ten-year outlooks on hydrogen stocks is very positive, and especially so on plug power because they have invested the necessary resources to developing sufficient infrastructure to be the foundation of the hydrogen revolution. They are creating every single facility out there that will produce electrolyzers 
and green hydrogen. They are going to be the backbone. The hydrogen revolution needs electrolyzers and green hydrogen production. They have developed the necessary infrastructure to be the bulk producer of both of those. And therefore, I think they have done what needs to be done to hit their long-term financial targets. And if they do, then the stock will be worth more than $50, $60, $70 in the future. Is that future coming anytime soon? I don't know. The market's going through growing pains right now. So depends on time horizon. Looking for a short-term hitter, short-term, you know, quick winner. I, I don't think plug stock is going to do it. I, I don't think these hydrogen stocks are going to do it. But if you're in this game for a long time, you're in it for three years, five years, seven years, 10 years, I think I think you want to own hydrogen stocks. You want to own plug power stock. I think they're going to be over the long term significant outperformers because of the momentum and the potential of the hydrogen revolution. All right. Um, staying in that clean energy world and staying with sectors that are kind of struggling right now, EV stocks continue to struggle. Uh, we got delivery updates from yeah. Tesla, Rivian, NEO, and more. And most of the reports seemed good, yet the stocks dropped in response. So are EVs kind of dead weight right now? Yeah, I mean, it certainly feels that way, right? I mean, when good news doesn't even spark rallies in the stocks and instead spark sell-offs, I mean, you got to question that price action, right? Because, yeah, Tesla beat estimates and delivery growth was very strong. Rivian beat estimates and delivery growth was really strong, maintained their 2023 targets. Neo deliveries looked good. Xpeng deliveries looked good. All the China uh, companies, their deliveries looked good. So, yeah, when you when you look at that data... And then you see the stocks continue to fall. You got to ask yourself, man, what's what's going on here? What, what are investors seeing that, that I'm not? What's the market seeing that I'm not? Um, you know, I, I, I think it's recession fears. I think that's what's going on with these names. Autos are not recession resilient. We think that just because they're selling electric vehicles, they're going to they're going to sell through a recession. That's not true. Electric vehicles have never been through a recession. COVID didn't count. Okay. The electric vehicle industry, as we know it today, has never been through a recession. Tesla didn't really start selling EVs. They were the first one really until 2011, 2012, 2013. That's after 2008, 2009. Okay. So, and that was at zero interest rates. So electric vehicles have one, never been through a recession and two, never seen four or five, 6% interest rates. There's a lot of uncertainty as to how electric, how well electric vehicles will sell in 2023 if the economy materially slows and interest rates stay high, especially because EVs are expensive. Mm. They're at the upper end of the price spectrum of cars, right? We're not talking about, you know, $20,000 vehicles here. We're talking about $40,000, $60,000 cars, and in some cases, six-figure cars. So from that perspective... I think it is those uncertainties. How well, how well will, <laughs> how well will electric vehicles sell in 2023 against the backdrop of a dramatically slowing economy, a potential recession, and probably sustained high interest rates? Because again, my outlook is for the Fed to pause, not to cut. I don't think rate cuts are coming. So you're going to look at an economy that's going to be sluggish with high interest rates over the next six months. Well, electric vehicles sell really well in that time frame. You know, I don't even know the answer to that question, but I'm in the game for the long term. And so I don't really care about the answer to that question because I'm of two beliefs. One, Rivian, Fisker, uh, Lucid and Tesla are going to be able to sell every single car that they make, especially the first three. Tesla, a little bit less so because they can make a ton of cars. But the other three, it doesn't matter what short-term demand trends look like. What matters is short-term manufacturing because they're going to sell every car. I mean, they've got backlogs. they got reservation backlogs. They don't need to worry about demand. They need to worry about making the cars. So I don't think near-term demand headwinds should weigh on those stocks, but I think they are. That probably creates an opportunity. And then two, longer term, recessions don't last forever. Slowdowns don't last forever. High interest rates don't last forever. They're looking out five, 10 years, I think the, the, the trajectory of electric vehicle sales is still strongly up and to the right. And that lucid for one, has the technology to be a leader. Rivian has the the style and the backing to be a leader. And Fisker has the business model to be a leader. So I, I still like those stocks. I just think the short term, kind of like hydrogen, it, it looks weak. It doesn't look great because of these recession fears. Are you in it for the short term? 
probably not going to make a quick buck in those names. You know, for the long term, these are probably really good buying opportunities. So that's how I view uh, EV stocks today. They may feel like dead weight, but if you're a long term investor, what feels like dead weight today will probably be your biggest winner in three or five years. And I think that's true with, with a lot of these EV stocks. Okay. Um, so let's also talk about the big tech as a safety net trade. Is that still happening? And if right. so, what are your fa- some of your favorite names in big tech in the big tech world? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the big tech as a safety net trade has has definitely continued. You're seeing the Nasdaq show alpha pretty much every single day, over and over and over again. You're seeing the Nasdaq 100. Uh, jump into a new bull market, rally 20% off its December lows. You're seeing names like Apple, Meta, Netflix, NVIDIA, Alphabet lead these rallies. Um, what am I, and I think that trade does continue because they're simultaneously, I mean, they're, they're, they're that sweet spot investment right now. They're pretty, not entirely recession resilient, but you know, we're still going to all use Google in a recession. We're still going to all watch Netflix in a recession. We're still all going to scroll on Facebook and Instagram in a recession. So they're, they're pretty recession resilient. They're fairly recession resilient, yet they're still going to benefit from lower interest rates or from lower treasury yields because they're long duration assets, valued like growth assets. And so they're going to benefit from that. So they're in that sweet spot of being resilient from a lot of economic noise, yet will benefit from the lower yields at that economic economic noise brings, the lower market yields that economic noise brings. So that's why they're they're working and that's why I think they will continue to work. So I think that dynamic persists for the foreseeable future. In that group, we've talked about meta. I really like meta. Valuations low, strategy pivots working, costs are coming down. I think they 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 got some good upside coming up here in the next few months. Um, I like NVIDIA. I think NVIDIA is just becoming the backbone of AI. And as everybody gets all excited about generative AI and all sorts of AI developments and projects and uh, applications, that NVIDIA's demand is just going to go up and 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 up. Not to mention the semiconductor industry is looking very strong right now. A lot of the, it looks like we hit the trough quarter for the semiconductor industry and that it's going to be an improvement from here on out. So I think that NVIDIA looks looks pretty strong. Microsoft has flexed its muscles as the leader in artificial intelligence deployment through enterprise applications and even consumer applications through OpenAI. So I think that that is, that is a trade that will continue to work very well. The valuation is, is pretty reasonable relative to its five-year, 10-year standard. So I think Microsoft stock continues to push higher. The only one I really don't like, you know, because I like Netflix. I think Netflix is, is really strong too. I have a lot of faith in the, the ad-supported launch here in 2023 because we talked about digital ad spending rebounding um, in 2023. I think that is going to happen. But I think what a lot of the growth is going to be is in connected TV ad spending because eMarketer just came out with their 2023 estimates for ad spending. They expect digital ads to rise, digital ad spending to rise 10% this year, and they expect connected TV advertising to rise 27%. So basically three times the overall digital ad spend growth rate, and that would make it the fastest growing sub-segment of the digital ad industry. So connected TV advertising is really working. I'm a huge believer in connected TV advertising. I think we've talked about why before, but I'll just briefly (laughs) recap it. They have the data, right? They have the data. Right now, not right, the status quo of TV advertising, you got my little cable box. They don't gather data from my cable box. So, and they service ads nationwide. Sometimes they have local regional ads, but it's not household specific advertising or neighborhood specific advertising. So, you know, we're watching the Super Bowl and I'll get a Budweiser ad and you'll get a Budweiser ad and, you know, somebody in recovery is going to get a Budweiser ad. And, you know, it's like we all get the Budweiser ad regardless if we buy beer or not. We all get the car ad regardless if we're, you know, on the affluent side or the not affluent side, we all get the we all get the same freaking ads. That's so stupid. That's the dumbest advertising model of all time. What digital advertising taught us, what social media taught us, what digital platforms taught us is targeted, directed advertising delivers significantly higher ROI than blanket advertising. And that's why every direct-to-consumer brand leverages platforms like Facebook, like Instagram, like YouTube to sell their products because that's where you can target people based on data. Why aren't we doing that in TV? 
Well, we are with connected TV platforms, with Roku, with YouTube TV, with Hulu, and now with Netflix. These platforms have so much viewing data. YouTube knows exactly what I want to buy through what I watch. I mean, they, you know, I, I watch basketball videos. I watch workout videos. I watch finance videos. They know what I'm in the market for. They'll give me – that's how I bought my tonal. I bought my tonal through a YouTube ad. <laughs> I, was, I was watching – I was watching, you know – I'm a huge LeBron James fan. I love basketball. And they probably put two and two together. It was, it was Christmas, you know, the holiday season two years ago. And, you know, I kept seeing tonal ads every time I would try to watch a video on YouTube. And at first I was infuriated. And then afterwards I was like, that's actually a pretty cool product. Went down to the local Nordstrom, tried it out, and boom, I became a buyer. That's the power of connected TV advertising. It can deliver the right ad to the right person at the right time. So that's why I think connected TV advertising eats up the whole TV advertising pie. Huge tailwind for Roku. Love Roku. They're also cost cutting, which is really smart because their problem has been cost structure. But I think Netflix has a lot of upside potential in 2023 through this ad launch and in the long term through that ad tier launch because there are billions, tens of billions of dollars sitting in the linear TV advertising channel that will inevitably migrate to the connected TV channel because linear TV advertising is the dumbest thing anybody could possibly do. Don't know why people spend money on Super Bowl advertisements anymore. Really don't get it. Like, I believe in 10 years, we will all be watching the Super Bowl through a connected TV platform. So, you know, Roku will rather will stream it through YouTube TV or through Sling or through something of that nature. And that there will be no such thing as national, maybe once in a while, there'll be national ad campaigns, but no, they'll all be directed, targeted campaigns for certain people. So we'll all be watching the Super Bowl and you'll be watching different ads than me. And my wife, if she's watching on a different TV, we'll be watching different ads than her friends who are watching it. Like we're all going to be watching different ads. And that's smart because when you scroll through my Facebook feed and I scroll through yours, we're not seeing the same ads. Makes no sense that TV works, works in the old fashioned way. But it's a huge shift that's going to happen. It's going to benefit Netflix, Roku, a lot of those connected TV advertisers. So I like Netflix a lot in, in the big tech world. The only name I don't really like in the big tech world is Apple. Mm. Because Apple never got cheap, even in the, in the sell-off. And I, I don't see the upside drivers. There's no innovation happening in the iPhone. The services and software segment, eh, cool. But like... What software is Apple launching that's awesome? I think Apple Music sucks, but that's my personal taste. Spotify, that new DJ app, or the new DJ feature on Spotify, have you no, tried it? I have it? not. Try it. <laughs> All right. Double thumbs up. That is, that's how you use AI to enrich the consumer experience. If you've noticed Spotify stock, it's going up right now. It's going up into the right. That's, that's, that stock's have a lot of momentum, and I think the big reason why is people started using that DJ, and they were like, holy moly, this is... This is what AI should be in 2023. So, um, and I've always thought, you know, Spotify is, is the AI leader. In fact, my lead data analyst, uh, as you probably know, uh, has told me many times and probably told you, I would only leave you, Luke, for one company and that's Spotify because they have the best AI team on mm. the planet. So that's, that's my lead data scientist <laughs> who's a, a physics major from Caltech and a very, very smart individual. So anyways, um, I, I, I adore Spotify's... Um, um, AI, but yeah, I just I don't see the bull thesis on Apple outside of it just being a defensive trade. Uh, it just feels defensive, 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 like the new cash. And yeah, I guess that makes sense, but for alpha generation purposes, it doesn't make sense. So I like the big tech trade, but the only one I don't like is is Apple, really. So yeah, that's where I stand on big tech. Okay, uh, final question: Symbotic. Uh, the stock has been on a tear, Luke, and before this podcast, yeah. I'd never heard of the company or the stock. So please give our newer viewers a quick recap of Symbotic and then tell our newer readers, uh, viewers, why this stock is on fire right now and just keeps soaring. Right. Okay. Question one, what is Symbotic? Uh, Symbotic is a warehouse robotics operator. So they've created a end-to-end -end system to automate an entire warehouse. So they come in, they take an existing warehouse. Walmart operates a warehouse. They'll come into that warehouse and they'll install their system to automate that entire warehouse, all the operations in that warehouse. That system includes inbound parcels. So they have a place where it's made. 
and then all these, you know, items, a bunch of cereal boxes, a bunch of um, protein shakes come in in an inbound parcel to the regional distribution center. Symbotic has these giant robotic arms that take that parcel off the truck and deconstruct that parcel into individual items. They then, those robotic arms, put them on these, basically what are small autonomous vehicles, kind of like conveyor belts. They have like, you know, uh, like, like a truck bed and they're little vehicles. And they have now carrying all these individual items, individual cereal boxes, individual protein shakes, and they drive to the storage shelves where they then store those items in the appropriate place in the warehouse. The cereal boxes go to the cereal box place and the protein shakes go to the protein shake place in that distribution center. So these little things, they drive over to the, the storage shelf. They have a thing where it can kind of go, it goes up. The platform goes up and it goes down depending on what level of the shelf you want to go to. It goes to that level and then it kind of boom, 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 just files them into the end of the story. <laughs> And then what happens is, okay, now, uh, you know, the San Diego Walmart needs, you know, protein shakes and cereal boxes and all these different things. So then, boom, put the order in. This little vehicle goes back and, boom, kind of goes up again, gets all the items it needs, two cereal boxes, three of this, four of that, collects them all. You know, multiple vehicles do this. And they go back to an outbound parcel site where a new pair of big robotic arms take those parcels or take those items and make a giant outbound parcel to the store. They wrap it, they put it together, boom, and they put it in the back backside of a truck. And then boom, the truck drives off to the San Diego Walmart or the LA Walmart or whatever. That's their system. It automates end to end the operations in a fulfillment center, in a warehouse, in a distribution center. That's symbolic technology, proprietary, patented, best in class, totally freaking awesome. Their big contract win is that they are automating. The reason I use Walmart is they are automating all of Walmart's regional distribution centers. They want a contract with Walmart, I believe the 2019, 2020, I forget. They want a contract to do that. And then within, you know, two years, summer 2021, Walmart was like, this is so awesome that we're going to expand this contract. We want you, Symbotic, to automate all 42 of our regional distribution centers in the United States. So now Symbotic is busy at work automating all 42 of those regional distribution centers in the United States. Now, here's the real kicker. One of the first big automated facilities that Symbotic was constructing for Walmart was to be in Fort Worth, Texas, a 1.5 million square foot completely automated uh, distribution center. Um, and that was to be completed in 2023. Walmart just announced yesterday 2,000 layoffs. 1,000 of those layoffs, half of them were from the Fort Worth Fulfillment Center. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to connect those dots. Symbotic is automating things, and then Walmart is firing people where the automation is already done. Walmart is bringing in the robots and, and firing the humans. And while a lot of people may think that's scary, this is the automation wave. That is what's happening. And Symbotic stock is up 170% from its November lows. Fantastic rally. Over that same time frame, the S&P 500 is up 5%. The Dow Jones is flat, energy stocks are down 10%, and natural gas is down 70%. So there is clearly a trend happening here, and that trend is the automation wave. So that's why symbolic stocks are really hot. Is I think people are trying to connect the dots and say, okay, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> the AI buzz just happened. Um, this is the way to play AI, and it's actually happening today. And Walmart's confirming that it's working through layoffs. They wouldn't be – if I automated a warehouse – and it sucked and it was not doing as well as my humans were, then I wouldn't fire anybody. Now, if I automate a warehouse and it's doing an amazing job, then I'm okay to let go 1,000 workers. I'm like, all right, you know, here's your two weeks. Read the read in between the lines there. The, the Walmart firings at e-commerce distribution centers tell us that Symbotics rollout is going really, really well. And so I think that's why the stock is performing really, really well. Like I said, up 170% from, from the November lows. Um, so I, I really like Symbotics stock. A lot of longtime viewers of this podcast have known that I've been pounding on the table for it 
uh, on the table about it for for a while now. And I continue to pound the table on. I think this is a, a very, very big long-term winner here. I think this is a future titan of industry. Um, but one thing I do want to address before we kind of close here is robots taking jobs and this mass labor displacement that will happen as a result of, of automation. We've been, lived through tons of technological advancements like AI and automation over the past, you know, several centuries, several thousands of years, millennia, actually. And um, we're sitting at a 3.5% unemployment rate. So through the advent of the wheel, through the advent of the automobile, through the advent of the airplane, through the advent of radio and television, through the advent of the computer, the internet, through the advent of the cloud, through the advent of cryptocurrencies, through the advent of all these things, we've cycled through those innovations and sit at 3.5% unemployment rate today. Technological innovations don't displace human labor. They do, but on a net basis, all it does is create new labor somewhere else. It's a labor shift more than it's a labor displacement. And actually, in my opinion, the way I look at it is all these technological innovations do is shift society, everybody up one peg in Maslow's hierarchy. Right. So Maslow's hierarchy says, you know, we have our base needs and these other needs. And so we kind of go up in terms of needs and what's really important. And as soon as we get one type of need satisfied, we don't have to worry about it anymore. We worry about the next week. Humans are always going to worry about things. That's just kind of in our <laughs> DNA. So are we going to worry about food security and like my own safety? And if I'm going to live the next day, because that's where we were 2000, 3000 years mm -hmm. ago. Or are we going to worry about, you know, if, you know, food at the store costs 10 cents more than it did two months ago? If, you know, the, the filling up my tanks and it costs 80 bucks as opposed to 60 bucks. If, uh, if TikTok's going to get banned, what am I going to do? <laughs> That's where we are. That's where our needs and worries are right now. Because technological innovations over the past thousands of years have compounded to bring us up in Maslow's hierarchy. We no longer have to worry about base needs. Most of us no longer have to worry about base needs and therefore we worry about things that are higher up on that hierarchy because our base needs are completely taken care of completely satisfied and that's what every technological innovation does i think it just pushes us up it brings all of society up a peg in in maslow's hierarchy and that's what ai is going to do it's going to bring us up a peg we're never going to have to worry about inflation with ai and automation never really we just won't have to because they're going to do things so efficiently create so much supply of goods there's never going to be a shortage ever so it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to solve that need. It's going to solve a lot of these labor um, supply chain or labor imbalances, labor market imbalances that exist right now. It's, it's going to solve a lot of those. It's, it's going to take care of, you know, people are exhausted working double shifts, doing, you know, uh, waiting tables and, and nannying or whatever, like all these double shifts that are happening. It's you, people aren't going to have to do those anymore because robots are going to do those jobs. And that individual is now going to be able to go find a new creative outlet to express themselves and earn money through that expression. So, I think that all this is really going to do is it's going to be a labor shift and a hierarchical need shift to a better place in society. That's why I'm not afraid of AI. That's why I don't think people need to be scared of robots taking jobs and all that stuff. Yes, it's happening right now, but I guarantee you the 2,000 or 4,000 people that got 2,000 people that got let go from Walmart are going to find work elsewhere, and they're probably going to find more fulfilling work in time. That's what I think technology does is it creates an opportunity for society to graduate to the next evolution of um, quality of living and create uh, up everyone's quality of living. So um, I like to make sure that my no, it's not not a primary concern of mine. But one of the concerns of mine is that I want my investments to not do bad to the world. Mm -hmm. And that's why I feel very confident in Symbotic. I don't think it's doing bad to the world. I think it's just pushing forward an evolution that with time is going to bring all of society up just a little bit. So anyways, I just wanted to close on on that note since we were talking about Symbotic and, and labor displacement, labor shifting. No, definitely. Glad to, glad to hear it. Uh, and that covers all our topics, but we do have a few fan questions this week, starting with sure. uh, Dave uh, Pikenik, will SoFi use CBDCs in the future like banks and will they be able to get them? Yeah, CBDCs are all the hype right now. Um, 
I don't, I don't, I don't really, I don't, I get CBDCs, but I don't, I don't get the hype around them because I don't think it's really going to be a huge thing in the future. I, I don't see the fundamental upside. Well, so far I do it, maybe to play with the trend. Does that can impact my thesis on them? No. Is that can impact the way I think about the stock? No. I like the stocks. It's creating an all-in-one finance super app that is flexing its muscles in the midst of a banking crisis by increasing FDIC insurance from 250K to 2 million and whose insiders are buying it hand over fist. So that's why I like the stock. CBDCs don't really factor into my consideration of, of SoFi stock at the current moment. And I don't think they will in the future, even if SoFi does do it. So, well, they, I don't know. Does it matter? I don't think so. Okay. Uh, and our next question from MS, any thoughts about Enovix? Enovix is a fabulous company. Okay. I'll, 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 I'll be short for, for reasons related to, um, uh, just for, for reasons related to my, my publications and, and my newsletters and, and my stock picks. But Enovix is, is a fabulous firm doing very innovative things. And I think they have a very promising long-term future. All right. Well, great analysis for our listeners and HGI investors, as always. Luke, any last words before we wrap today? Not that I can think of. I mean, I think one thing that I told you earlier is that, um, you know, before we even started this podcast and you know, were just chatting is how, you know, the entire duration of this podcast has been in a bear market or in a not bull market. It's been a sideways to down market, choppy, inflation, fear, all this stuff. Um, those are not normal times. The The norm is economic expansion. The norm is rising stocks. The norm is low inflation. The <laughs> norm is low rates. That is the norm. What we've been through is not the norm at all. And I am personally very excited to get back to the norm. And I'm very excited to continue to do this podcast with you and for our viewers as we shift back to the norm. People who, you know, there, there's this idea of chronocentrism, mm -hmm. which is that people think that their period in time is so important. It's never happened before and will never happen again. And it's going to last forever, these changes, right? Do not suffer from chronocentrism. This time is not different. This crisis will not last forever. This too shall pass. Like COVID, like 08, like the dot-com crash, like the savings and loans crisis, like the period of crazy inflation in the 70s, like, you know, going all the way, like World War II, like World War I, like the Great Depression, like, you know, there have been so many different flavors and styles of economic resets and market crashes, and none of them changed the long-term trend. So this one is either different and it's the end of capitalism. <laughs> or, or we're reverting to the mean, to the trend that is the dominating trend of the past. Well, how long have humans been around? At least 5,000 years. Um, the trend that's been around for 5,000 years, and that is humans taking one step forward at a time. So I'm very excited about where we can go with our stocks and where we can go with this podcast. And for our viewers, I believe that if the mean reversion isn't happening right now, I think it is. But if it's not, it's going to happen. And when it does happen, uh, I will fully embrace it and be very excited to to show readers how to, how to profit in a viewers. Sorry, viewers how to profit in in a new bull market expansion. Very poignant, Luke. Thank you very much. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Please, if you have any questions or comments for Luke, leave them in the comments section. We'd love to hear any feedback on any topics you'd like us to cover. And as always, to see if we can answer any of your burning questions. Please don't forget to like and subscribe. And we will see you all next week. Until then, bye all. <laughs>